Hi, my name is Dane Blanton. I'm a two-time Olympian in the sport of beach volleyball. I played in the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia, and also in the 2004 Games in Athens, Greece. Had an unbelievable time, but I think what could be improved about the Olympics is involving more of the local youth in the area to have them have access to go to as many Olympic events as possible because they are the future and that's the best way to inspire them. But what I really love about the Olympics is the fact that it's once every four years. It's very seldom that it happens and the best from all over the world come together to compete. So that's what was so enjoyable for myself. Hi, my name is Jordan Wolomovsky, and I'm a distance swimmer on the United States Olympic swim team. I competed in Rio in 2016, and I qualified to compete this summer in Japan. One thing I would improve about the Olympics is giving athletes more input and a bigger voice into how the Olympics are run and organized. Thanks. Hi, everybody. My name is Kelsey Campbell, and I am a freestyle wrestler for Team USA. I'm a current national team member and I went to the 2012 Olympics in London. And I think the one thing that I would improve about the Olympics is just more diverse stories of all the athletes. I do believe we've gotten a lot better as a movement in covering some of those underdog Cinderella stories. Um, and, and we've done better about being diverse, but I think we could do better. And I think there's so many more incredible stories out there that the world needs to hear, especially right now. And I think my favorite part of the Olympics is the power that the games have in bringing people together. When I competed and prepared for my Olympics, I saw people come together just to support athletes that I had never seen come together my whole life. And I think that's very powerful. Hi, my name is Melissa Belote. And I swam in the 1972 and the 1976 Olympics in Munich, Germany and Montreal, Canada. I'd like to see the politics be removed from the Olympic Games if possible. And also I'd love science to be always one step ahead of the athletes that always want to try to take an advantage by using performance enhancing drugs. Lastly, I love the Olympic Games because it's the greatest sporting event in the world. It brings athletes, the best athletes from all countries together, and we get to experience competition as well as learning about people and their cultures. Hi, my name is Moses Igo James. I'm a light welterweight boxer from Nigeria. I captained the Nigerian boxing team to the Olympics Barcelona 1992. What needs to be improved at the Olympics is when judges' decision is disputed, a review needs to be conducted right away on the same day. And what I love about the Olympics is this is where countries around the world come together where the best of the best can compete. Go Olympics! Hi, my name is Rogério Dutra Silva. I am a tennis player. I went in, in Olympics in Rio de Janeiro in 2016. Um, I think uh, improve uh, the accommodation and Rio was not so good. And what I love in Olympics games is be part uh, the flag of Brazil, everybody together, all the countries together. For me, it was incredible and really, really nice. Hi, my name is Ron Skirin, and I was an Olympic cyclist in the 1972 and 76 Olympics and was a coach in the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. And hopefully they'll come back again. The best thing that we could do to improve the Olympics here would be to focus on amateur sports and 
the athlete doing the best they can rather than which country does the best. Um, I remember the joy of competing against the best amateur athletes in the world. And the basic reward that most of us got was knowing that we'd done our best. So go Team USA and hope to see some of you there. Hola, my name is Bernardo Silva and I'm an ex-soccer player. I was supposed to be at the 88 Olympic Games, but uh, ended up being uh, dismissed from Brazilian squad finalist. And it was a really sad time for me. Uh, something I would improve, maybe the method of the qualification, calculating uh, the average of the last four years uh, results. Uh, and what I love, for sure, the Olympic spirit and the union of the nation's uh, tour sports. Hi everyone, my name is Alev Kelter. I'm originally from Eagle River, Alaska. I live currently in San Diego, California. I participated in the 2016 Rio Olympics. My favorite part about the Olympics is that everyone comes together and the whole world stops for a moment. Some things I would change about the Olympics um, is the leveraging the infrastructure post-Olympics. I think that would be extremely helpful. Also, transportation issues um, for elderly and um, just folks in general. I'm excited that you guys are having these conversations and thank you so much for participating and have a great day. Good evening. I'm Moira Shuri, the Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square. Welcome to our discussion, Can We Build a Better Summer Olympics? that we are proud to present in partnership with the ASU Foundation. We'd like to extend a warm welcome to our Arizona State University alumni and friends. Thank you for joining us. The Olympic athletes you just heard from raised a wide range of questions. Our panelists will explore these and other issues associated with the Olympics. Zocalo's mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We examine essential questions in an open-minded and democratic spirit. To learn more, go to our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. Tonight's moderator is veteran sports writer, Kurt Streeter of the New York Times. Kurt played on the ATP and the Pro Tennis Tour, went on to report for the LA Times Metro and Sports sections, and then enjoyed a long stint at ESPN. Over to you, Kurt. And I'm glad to introduce our panelists for tonight's discussion. Thank you very much for coming, everybody. Uh, let me give for the audience a, a, a rundown of, of our participants and their bios, short bios here. Lashinda Demas is a two-time Olympian uh, who competed for Team USA in 2004 and 2012. Uh, she was a silver medalist in the 400 meters uh, at the Olympics in 2000, 2012 in London. She's also an outspoken anti-doping advocate who works with the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. Thank you, Lashinda, for being with us. Greg Luganis is a four-time Olympic gold medalist in diving, competing in 1976, 1984, and 1988 for Team USA. He's been called the greatest diver of all time, and in my opinion, he is. <laughs> and... Uh, and he's been an official mentor to the USA uh, diving team for years. He's also an activist for the HIV AIDS, for HIV AIDS awareness and LGBTQ rights. Thank you, Greg. Donna Lopiano, legendary in our, in our world. She's the founder of Sports Management Resources, 
which is a collegiate athletics consultancy. She's also the former CEO of the Women's Sports Foundation. She's a powerful advocate for gender equity in sports and is herself a decorated athlete. Nine-time All-American softball player was played in national championships in four different sports. Welcome, Donna. And Victoria Jackson, a sports historian and assistant professor of history at Arizona State University. She's also a professional runner, and her writing on issues and society has been published in the LA Times, my former paper, uh, the Washington Post, Slate, and other publications. She's currently writing a book on athlete, athlete privilege, power, and activism in collegiate sports. Very timely, Victoria. Thank you for being with us as well. Uh, I'll just start too as well by saying that um, my, a little bit of uh, my thoughts on the Olympics. Um, I love the Olympics, but I also have to say that I, I loathe the Olympics. I'm a little bit skeptical of them. My first memories of the Olympics would be from probably from the early, early 70s, 72, the 76 games that Greg was in. Um, but my, my, and I loved watching them as a, as a young boy, but then my, my most recent memories are being in Brazil, in Brazil, in Rio in, in um, 2016, seeing the incredibly heavy police presence there, seeing people from the favelas shut out of much of the games, um, and um, but very, very, and seeing people just displaced for the, for the game. So I think that's something that we're gonna talk about with both sides, the good and the bad of the, of the Olympics, um, or, and really what can be fixed, what can be changed, what can we be hopeful about? So. I wanted to start off with Greg. Since you, <laughs> you competed in, in so many of the games, starting back in 76, in an era that was really before the corporatization of the games. What are your memories going back to those games? And I want to see if you can compare them to what it's become now and, your, and the last games that you participated in and how you saw that arc change. Well, my memory of the games, I mean, every Olympics was different. Uh, 76. I mean, I was 16. I was still in high school. So I was running around the village, like having, you know, water balloon fights, you know, uh, getting into trouble that way, you know, and that was my experience because I was just a kid. Uh, and, uh, then qualified for 1980, we didn't go, uh, and then 84 and 88, uh, each one of them was very different. I, what I thought was really fascinating to me because I went to the Olympics in, um, in Alberville, uh, Winter Olympics, and, you know, since 72, the 72 Olympic Games, security was really, really tight. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of my introduction to the Olympic Games anyways. Uh, but then when I went to a Winter Olympics, it was so much more relaxed at that, at that time. And, uh, and it was much more uh, friendly, you know, it was, and welcoming. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, since then, I mean, it's, it's gotten the presence, the police presence and, and, and that sort of thing has been really, really increased security, really tight, um, makes it really challenging. Uh, I, I do remember in 76, I, um, I was diving with Dr. Sammy Lee. He was not allowed on the pool deck. He couldn't even coach me. So, um, you know, it's, you know, there's challenges, you know, trying to, uh, 
get the athletes needs met. And I think they're doing a better job of it. I'm not sure. It, it, it appears to, to me that that's, that's the way, but there, there is definitely a presence there that, uh, you know, it's the security is really, really tight. Um, thanks much. Now I want to follow up a little bit on that. Uh, Donna, uh, I'll go, go to you now. When you think of the games and you think of the games now, and going forward, we're, we're you know, Zocalo is based in Los Angeles, and there's a city supposed to host the games in 2028. What are your What are your hopes for the games going forward? What's the What's the one thing that change? I didn't hear the end of your question, Kurt, but um, just in general, um, I'm older than most of the other people on this uh, panel. And the thing that strikes me about the Olympic Games is counting. Um, counting the number of male versus female athletes, counting the number of medals, counting, watching the changes in numbers of female officials, seeing how much more has to be done, uh, thinking very protectively about sand volleyball players being told by their IF that they have, have to wear bikinis when they, when they compete, how controlling the games are, um, not really for the purpose of protecting athletes, but protecting the IOC brand, um, making it commercially successful, and forgetting really about civil rights, gender rights, race, uh, racial equity. Um, that's where you know, this, this wonderful event has consistently, you know, fallen down. Uh, the numbers are still terrible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, uh, it'll be interesting to see as, as we live in a world now as witnessed in the last several weeks where new voices are, are, are being heard and it's going to be uh, at long last. And it's going to be interesting to see how, how that changes the games. And um, I wanted to move on to Lashinda. Um, you, uh, are, are, you competed most recently in 2012, right? Mm -hmm. um, how did you feel about the way, when we're speaking of gender and we're talking about gender issues, how did you feel that you were treated related to, you know, in, in comparison to male athletes? And, and I'm thinking not only just on the, uh, on the field of play, or in your case on the track, but uh, in terms of marketing or in terms of the way the media um, treated you or handled your story. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, and I talk often about it. Um, so amongst athletes, I don't feel there's a difference of treatment. So like when my male counterparts are out there and competing, we know what we have done to get to this point. We respect each other's talent. It's no difference of treatment from each from them to us. Uh, but I do feel there's a difference um, when trying to find these companies that are willing to sponsor you. Um, being a good athlete is never enough when you're a woman. Like it has to be, you have to have this great story. And this is what they tell you. Um, just so happened being a mom of twins was one of those stories that they wanted to tell because like, how would a mom be an athlete or an Olympian, you know? So it's that, and it always seems that, um, that your accolades on the field are never enough. Like I was an American record holder, mm -hmm. uh, a world champion, and I don't even know how many times a national champion, you know, over five, and that wasn't enough. 
But for men, it seems that just being a great athlete, which that's what you're trying to aim for, is it's enough. So um, I found that that's like a major difference when we're talking about marketing um, women versus men. And um, just also that uh, the looks come into play. You mm-hmm. know, they, they want you to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just being a, a black woman at that, mm-hmm. it was kind of hard to fit uh, what they consider to be the norm and uh, marketable. Right. So you always get that marketable uh, word there. So uh, exactly. are you going to sell that many shoes? I'm like, I don't know how many shoes I'm going to sell, but I'm sure that the fifth ranked guy over there is selling less than me, though. I'm ranked number one and he's ranked five and he's getting paid probably three times more than me and selling less shoes if we're going to go by that. So it's, it's you know, those things that we run into. Yeah, particularly uh, particularly an issue for black women. I mean, in the sport I cover a lot is tennis and we see that, you know, with Serena Williams uh, where she her endorsements are, are not nearly, you know, what, what they are for, for white women of the same, you know, relative you know, right. level of play. And her the, looks are attacked a lot of the time as well. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And there's nobody quite of Serena's level of play. Victoria, um, you know, it's been interesting going into this discussion. There were, uh, there have been a lot of activists that have, have, have reached out to, uh, to Zocalo, um, uh, you know, uh, concerned, uh, voicing very strong concerns about uh, how the 1984 Olympics affected South Los Angeles, and particularly when it comes to policing, um, I think that those concerns are 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 quite valid. I think there's probably a, 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 a bit more to the story, actually, um, in terms of the complexity of what was going on and in the 1980s. And, and I'm saying that as somebody who who covered the LAPD in the past, uh, but it, that is a very valid concern. I, I think to me, I was wondering if you could uh, tell me a little bit about the history of of policing in at, particularly the 84 games and and we're tying this to then 2028 the, the Olympics is going to be back it looks like in Los Angeles and even going going back over time in 1968 there were uh, student protests and a lot of protest movements going on in, in Mexico City uh, before that Olympics and, uh, and 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 maybe even expand that to to other other games if you can just give us a sh- sort of a short primer on that Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I think, um, well, I, I mean, the, the first kind of critical um, read I discovered on um, the impact the Olympics has on local communities was actually UCLA historian um, Robin D.G. Kelly's book, Yo Mama's Dysfunctional, Fighting the Culture Wars in Urban America. And it kind of dove into how this played out on the ground for um South Central LA and and the police sweeps that were happening and particularly the militarization of the police. Um, And and I I mean, it's not that, you know, I was kumbaya about the Olympics. I understood that there were broader kind of issues in global mega events. And of course, like the origins of the games being kind of a white male supremacist political project um, calling itself apolitical, but I'd I'd never, given consideration to the impact on local communities until I read Robin Kelly's book. Um, but I think um, the, the, the point of origin or the period of time that we really need to turn to, to understand the kind of entrenchment of the militarization and police presence and security um, that, that happens at the games and kind of the pushing out of local communities and um, the displacement and um, 
sometimes killing of people in local communities is the period from 68 to 76. Um, so the Mexico City 68 Olympics, um, you know, those games were taking place in the midst of a very large political movement protesting the Mexican government, the PRI. And it, it, it's called a student movement, but it was much more widespread than that. It was peaceful. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of people marching and um, at a series of marches, there'd be these police crackdowns. And so, um, you know, the, the organizing committee is using the games to advertise Mexico as joining the first world in a great place for the global business community to come and do business. So they don't want this sort of disruption. So there's a very violent crackdown on these peaceful protests. And also actually a concern of Mexican activists linking up forces with black athletes um, from the United States and kind of fears of a, you know, a, a kind of joint symbolic um, protest happening at the games. So if you go to the Wilson Center's website, um, you can see a lot of the FBI documents and communication um, where people are um, suspicious of these connections taking place. So um, on October 2nd, uh, 1968, less than 10 days from the opening ceremonies, um, another one of these marches is scheduled in Tlatelolco Square, um, La Plaza de las Tres Culturas. It's um, actually where there are um, uh, Tenochtitlan uh, uh, remains. There, there's a preserved area where you can see kind of the market area of Tenochtitlan, the indigenous community in this space. And so people are gathering for another peaceful protest um, and in that plaza, it's a lot of families. So it's mostly women and children who are returning home from shopping and that sort of thing at the end of the day. And what happens is tanks start rolling in over these ruins um, where Hernando Cortez massacred indigenous peoples in 1521. And these tanks roll in and it's the Olympic battalion and they start shooting and hundreds of people die. <laughs> um, and this is just one moment in a series of crackdowns. Um, thousands yeah. of people were arrested. And so this, this moment is where we really see um, uh, an entrenchment of security forces, militarization, and police, because what happens is 72 is the opposite. Munich, right? It's all about the local organizing committee to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And they want to show the world that they're not the Nazis, right? Yeah. The last thing they want in Munich is people working or walking around with large firearms, right? And so that opens the door for a terrorist attack. And so 76, we see the pendulum swing back. And from that point forward, it, it's really this high security that Greg was describing at Olympic games. And the community yeah. impact of that is is often devastating. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, so when I was in, when I was in Rio for 2016, I spent, I spent a good amount of time in the favelas, in, in, the, in, in what's, considered the the slums of 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 rio and I, I i just got off the beaten path and and forgot about sports for a while and went and reported out of the out of a couple of, of favelas and it was interesting to see the uh, level of policing which is always very heavy-handed in that in, in that area or in those areas which are all over rio but the crackdown was immense and the people that i spoke to were fearful they 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 couldn't they also felt completely cut off from the games, which were happening just below them, because um, many of the favelas are on hills. And uh, I mean, I've never seen so many, uh, you know, I mean, it was uh, so many large weapons, let's put it that way, uh, and, and a real sense of fear. So, 
the, this issue is going to just continue on, I think. And, and, and we're just going to, it's just going to be something I think that the, the games are going to have to grapple with and, and find some way to come to, to, uh, to uh, handle the, the security in a way that makes people feel good and whole and in the ways that people are now shouting for. Um, Greg, I wanted to ask you uh, about uh, LGBTQ, again, um, uh, rights, and we're, we're, we're talking a lot about civil rights, women, uh, people of color, local communities, but um, gay, lesbian, trans, transgender rights in, in, in the games, and do the LGBTQ athletes of today feel comfortable and supported uh, in, in the Olympic movement? How, how has that changed? Again, your, your historic perspective is fascinating. Well, I mean, it's, it's really difficult when we continue to go back to countries that are, uh, are not real solid on their human rights uh, uh, practices, as well as, uh, you know, their uh, human rights against the LGBTQ communities, uh, accepting, you know, why are we going back to Russia? Why are we going back, you know, to a lot of these countries that have abysmal uh, human rights. Uh, and I mean, I, what I would like to see personally, I mean, I'd like to see like three or four Olympic venues, then, you know, then, then you don't have the bidding. The bidding, there is so much money that goes into the bidding of, of getting an Olympic Games. It's crazy. I mean, the money that they save that money, you can, you can put it into, you know, making these facilities state of the art, you know, top top notch, and you know, be kind of a, a, a sacred ground that you know that you could go to and be uh, take care of. You know, where it's you know it's it's familiar for the athletes and it's safe for the athletes and it doesn't have the the ramifications of like the uh, you know the politics seeping in and other people's agendas. And, uh, I, you know, I think I, I really would like to see that personally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe in, in, maybe in have it just be in one city, just constantly one city for the summer yeah. games and one city for the Olympic game for the winter games. Well, yeah. I, I think having uh, qualified for multiple Olympic games, it's kind of nice to go to another place. <laughs> so maybe, you know, two summer, two winter, um, because I think that's, I think that would be very sustainable, uh, and and not so hard on uh, on each country. Because really, the 1984 Olympic Games that was the first Olympic Games, and I think the only Olympic Games that ever was profitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, cities cities apparently typically spend about fifty to hundred million dollars just to bid on the Olympics. Yeah, uh, the LA Olympics, the original estimates apparently were. Uh, that it was going to cost $5.3 billion. And now uh, it's predicted, the prediction is that it's going to cost close to 7 billion and that's, you know, eight years out. So um, you can pretty much guarantee that that number is going to go up as well. The, the cost is incredible. The, and what happens to the infrastructure? Uh, Lashinda, Lashinda and then Donna, I was going to go to you on this. The infrastructure issue, I think is very interesting. Um, Lashinda, you grew up in, in South LA. Right or it's mid city, mid city, mm -hmm. and so and, uh, and then you yeah. went to high school in Long Beach, uh, so very near those the the venues for the eighty four mm -hmm. games, 
I'm wondering if you, what kind of push that you got from, you know, the, the 84 games then were supposed to go into the community and help the, help the community with, you know, all, you know, all, all manner of uh, programming and, and even, and, and then there's uh, swimming pools and tracks and the like. Uh, and I know that they've done some of that, but did, did any of that touch on you as a, as a young track superstar? Yeah. So in 84, I was one, one years old. So, <laughs> but I mean, you're, <laughs> there's I mean, that. you're supposed to last. This was supposed to last for, you know. Yeah, and the money is still there, too. Like he said, it was like one of the only profitable um, cities. Mm -hmm. um, so growing up, those facilities weren't used pretty, you know, at all for the most part. Like I said, I learned how to ride my bike uh, in the Coliseum parking lot. So that shows you that there was the never cars there you know it was just kind of there mm -hmm. um there was like one indoor track meet in the it's called the sunkist meet uh here in la and that was over there in that uh i don't know what building that was in but it was the same area the same village area and mm -hmm. uh that was once a year mm -hmm. um so we never growing up because i did i ran track uh since i was five years old there was never really a tie to the community from the Olympic movement. Did you get any Ever. financial help at all? Any financial help for to go to travel to wherever you need to for meets? Or so, you know what? I think it went from like the U.S. governing body, which trickles down from the IOC. Mm -hmm. So um, we did get help in that regard. But um, they they never went out their way to tie it to the Olympic movement. And I think it is important. That, that you should do that, especially with young kids uh, that are participating in sports. So my answer would be no. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure that we did, like I said, we did receive funds and grants from the IOC, um, but it came from the U.S. governing body. So they did not make an announcement like, hey, this is from the Olympic Committee or, you know, what have you. It was just here's a grant. And it wasn't many of those either. So for the most part, we did our own uh, fundraising uh, to, you know, go places and to travel to different junior Olympics and little national meets. And that's mm -hmm. kind of how all the teams around me did. We did our own fundraising. Wow. Wow. Let's yeah. just out of curiosity, did the, um, the LA foundation money, the profits of the Olympics started a foundation in, in LA. Has yeah. that all gone into community lower level um kids kids program funding Is, uh, i'm not sure it's called the la 84 um, foundation but i'm i'm not sure i know that they they do provide funding but how often they do it and where it goes to i'm really not sure with that at yeah. all LA, the la 84 they'll uh they'll go in and and refurbish uh like uh, baseball fields and uh, swimming pools, you know, in inner city, um, you know, because I've, I, I've, I've had ties and connections to the um, LA 84, uh, you know, and they, you know, they, they do, they are active in the community and then they tr try to provide uh, as, you know, uh, as much support, you know, to help, you know, uh, to make their, their dollars cost effective to like if it's a facility that they feel is going to be used because some of the facilities they're run down 
they're and they're not going to be used. But mm -hmm. um, you know, to try and pinpoint the ones that will be used that uh, the community does will be able to uh, benefit from. Mm -hmm. Donna, Donna, is there is there a problem with the way the the games are are, are governed governed? That I mean, you, <laughs> I think you know. Obviously, there's a lot of corruption issues um, at the top level, but even you know, as we're talking about these, sort of lower lower level um, uh, on the ground after the games. But what about at the highest level, I, the IOC level? Um, when, when you look at the composition of um, the International Olympic Committee, 108 or, or so members, I, I keep forgetting, uh, you're talking about primarily rich guys. Uh, you're talking about primarily guys. You're looking at, I think it's up to 29% female, maybe 30% female, and that only recently. It, it had trouble getting over 20%. Do you know what the number is, Victoria, now? It's like 20, I think it's 29. Um, so um, you're, you're looking at a governance system which uh, is not diverse. It doesn't embrace, um, you know, what we would expect the Olympics to be, at least the image it intends to, to portray. And it is still at that point, as Craig mentioned, um, the games are given to autocratic uh, leaders. Mm -hmm. And for because they're so expensive, uh, those leaders control money. It's not a democratic choice to give spend all this money. And who is uh, ill-served? It's the poorest people in those countries. And we have not been uh, able to break out of that mm -hmm. at all. Somebody mm -hmm. has um, an ulterior motive for, for doing the games. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's it's not to better their internal societies. It's a, it's a political, um, you know, political motive that dominates. Okay, Victoria, I want to go to you one one question. Then I want to, and then I want to uh, uh, get into a little bit more of the positive stuff. Things that things that can really be <laughs> great about the games. Uh, uh, just just quickly, is what uh, is what are your what are your hopes for um, changing the IOC at the top level? And not, don't spend too long because I want to then get to some of the good stuff too. Yeah, it's dangerous talking to academics. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, exactly what Donna was saying, that it's it's purposeful to, to keep things as they are. You don't want creative thinkers. You don't want innovation. You don't want imaginative people. And when athletes are that way, they're often looked down upon, they're forced out, they're seen as a problem. And this is in sporting organizations across the board. Sport in particular is one of these spaces where there's this like just default assumption that the way things are done is the right way. But that's not true at all. And if we have more diversity in leadership positions, people from different backgrounds, different races, different genders, even people from outside the sports space thinking about how can we make this better? And, and also, you know, athletes are our North Star, right? Money isn't our North Star. Athletes are our North Star. And the communities in which these um, sporting events are taking place, um, that it's going to make things better. Like it's inhibiting the potential of the games to do things as they've always been. LA has an opportunity here um, because they did force IOC to innovate in 84. Um, the reason those games were the, the, the first profitable games is because they were the first corporate games. And I'm not saying that's the right model, but... 
I'm, I'm saying there's historical precedents for LA to do things differently. Um, mm -hmm. And in moments where people are increasingly critical and skeptical of the Olympic games as they've always been done. So, you know, rule 40 and rule 50, um, rule 40 that um, limits the ability of athletes to um, shout out their sponsors and market themselves if they're not official Olympic partners. Rule 50, which is very much relevant right now, um, inhibiting athlete protest and athlete free speech, um, using the games to um, make our world a better place. These are things that are purposefully disempowering athletes. And so, you know, there is opportunity to think creatively about how we can, um, you know, kind of reconfigure things, have athletes and communities as our North Star and make these games truly serve those athletes rather than the kind of perpetuation of the Olympic games. I like that. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I like the idea of uh, being creative there. Maybe some audio problems here. Can you hear me? Yes. On Zoom, okay. Let, let's come up with some creative thoughts on on what what would the idea what if we were going to have a, a if we were going to reimagine the Olympics entirely, um, <laughs> or even just one thing that you think could could make it better. Uh, well, I can say and, something. And the summer games and the Olympic games. Lashinda, you yeah, go ahead. And let's start with how about allowing the athletes to profit from the games. <laughs> let's start there. And what would that look like for you? What would that have looked like for you then in, in, in 2012, coming out of 2012? Well, just having prize money for your placement there, just for even making a team, you get something reimbursed. Uh, we're considered an amateur sport on an Olympic level which I think is kind of crazy. I would like to see that change because you have people that are training their whole athletic life to be at this moment. And it's nothing amateur about the work that they're putting in. So um, those two things, maybe uh, just for making a team, you're getting some type of payment for placing, uh, you're getting some type of payment. Um, we could start there. Mm -hmm. uh, that has changed uh, from I, my day. It was true amateur sports. We didn't have sponsors. We couldn't have, we couldn't do endorsements or we would be, uh, uh, you know, we would not be deemed eligible. Right. So then, uh, but those rules had changed and often, you know, that, I mean, I was a part of the uh, athlete reps that pushed that along so that athletes could have trust funds. And then all of a sudden the USOC was, was giving some funding uh, Olympic gold, you know, Olymp you know, Olympic gold, gold money um, to athletes, you know, which was like unheard of back when I started. So um, there has been a shift, but I agree with you. And we, we need to go further with that shift. Yeah. And even with the USOC, they're, they're giving you money for your placement and it's minimal, minimal. Yeah, I, 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 and, I wholeheartedly agree with you. you know, and that, it's still like room, the, um, it's still, how do you say it? The Olympic Games still, they consider us amateurs still to this day. Technically, it's an amateur event and that's the excuse that is used not to pay. So what the Olympic Committee is doing, which is tied to the Olympics, 
we're still getting paid in some format or way, but they're, they don't want to let go of that amateur title. Because yeah, which is silly because we're competing against virtual professionals when you're competing against China and, uh, and some of these other countries. Right. And I, I did an appearance right, in, uh, uh, right before the London Olympics, uh, 2012. And, um, uh, one of the gal men, she said, well, your government gave you a house, didn't they? I said, are you kidding? No. I said, well, did, you know, you get a stipend from the government. I said, no, no. that's not what, that's not the, the country that we live in. No. Right. But, but then again, I mean, the people who are, uh, you know, the, you know, people who profit from, from the Olympic games, you know, it's not the, the true stars of the Olympic games is the athletes. You know, it's not the sponsors. It's not celebrate the, the athletes. Right. More athlete centric. Yes. Donna, you're, you look like you. Both our, both our, our college system and our USOC system are rigged markets against athletes. Um, in, in the college system, athlete um, scholarships are um, really 10% of all revenues coming into colleges and universities. And when you look at the NGBs, the NGB leaders are paying themselves, they're play, paying their staffs, they are uh, promulgating rules that limit the, the compensation to the athletes themselves. So you're looking at two rigged markets. When you look at the, the uh, professional compensation market, um, be it NFL or whatever, you're looking at 50% of all revenues going to athletes or 40% of all um, um, revenues to athletes. So it begs for more power to athletes on governing boards for NGBs in the USOC, um, for athletes not to unionize as employees, but as uh, to unionize as athletes so that the Athletes Advisory Council isn't 20% representation, it's 50% rep representation. Um, athletes have to have a stronger voice. Maybe not, right. the cur maybe not the current younger athletes, but those like Craig, like Lashinda, who have been there and know what the problems are and are sharp cookies and, and can start being advocates that don't have to worry when they say something about not being selected for the team or that somebody is going to right. do something bad to me. And Let's that has been the challenge over the years. Right. Yep. Let's just say we've created now an Olympic, an Olympic movement where the athletes have that voice, right? And they're being well-paid and compensated the way that, that they should be. Um, Greg, what, yeah. uh, what would be your one thing then more additionally that you that you would change making this game making the games making the movement better well i mean like i said i mean if you you know if you if you pour all of the resources into a sustainable uh olympic venue uh and that's that's where you go back you know time and time again for whatever olympics you know whether it's one place two place i think two two to summer, to some, to winter would be definitely sustainable because then it can be utilized for, for also uh, training and research like our Olympic training centers, so that we have that uh, facility that is, uh, you know, all, all, you don't you don't have the money for spun, you know, to try and get your your country or or your city bid in. I mean, that is, 
millions, hundreds of millions of dollars just to get a bid. You know, if you pour that money into the facility, I think that it can be, you know, a spectacular facility, state of the art, and, uh, and also alleviate a lot of the issues of going to a country where you, you, won't, you won't be welcome. I mean, I, I, went, I went to the LGBTQ Open Games when, mm-hmm. Sochi, you know, between, when Sochi was going on. And we were in, in fear, um, you know, it was the LGBTQ uh, Russian Sports Federation that put it on. And we were in fear that we might be detained. I could have been detained. Um, I had it, all of my friends, my husband were saying, don't go, don't go, because they, I, they could, uh, you know, they could detain me for 12 days with no, you know, without any uh, evidence or, or, or anything. But I was there for an LGBTQ event. So, you know, why are we going back to these countries and pouring money into them that we don't share same um, values, you know, on human rights? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that is my best solution, I, I feel. Yeah, and it also like in a in a in a time of global warming that uh, reduces yeah. the footprint too. You know, yeah, you tear these buildings down and build right. the, uh, there was all the waste that goes into that and all the harm to the environment. Um, yeah. I'm gonna I'm I'm going to go to audience questions in just a few minutes. Um, uh, let's go to Victoria just and quickly. Your one wish for a better Olympics. What what's that going to be? Oh. I can do three really fast and bullet points. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Abolish rule 40. So that allows athletes to shout out their sponsors and actually have economic empowerment during the games. Abolish rule 50 to allow athletes to regain their social and political power in the games. Um, And then uh, the third has to do with uh, supporting women. Um, You know, we've, we've had this progressive narrative, but if you drill down country by country, that's not necessarily the case. So have international federations, national Olympic committees, and national governing bodies require all um, sports. If they support men, they have to support women too. Um, FIFA has 56 members that don't have active women's sides. Those men's teams shouldn't be allowed to qualify for international play until they have women's sides. So you put pressure on them in that way. Great. Great. Sorry. Great. (laughs) Donna, give give me your one or two, and then we're going to go to audience questions. Uh, playing on Lashinda's um, uh, mention of media coverage, um, one of the great things that happened um, with the Olympics was Dick Ebersol and NBC coverage and the realization that the audience for the Olympic Games is 60% women. We don't have football. We don't have professional. We didn't for a long time have professional uh, basketball. There wasn't professional baseball for the longest time. So the games became stories to be told to a different audience, women, which was the storytelling that you see right now. Now, all we have to fix is the storyteller not being sexist. Um, And to me, that should be an easy switch. Um, So that's the good, the good in the what we have to do. Interesting. Okay, thank you. That's uh, powerful for me, especially as a storyteller. So I appreciate that. uh, Lashinda, I want to. We're we're going to go down to, to some audience questions. So uh, enough of just the just the five of us talking. Uh, I, I I like this one. I think this is something that you can really weigh in on. 
uh, a question came, uh, are doping and cheating a problem that can be conquered? Um, it depends on what conquered mean means. Um, I feel that you are never going to just completely annihilate doping. Like I, it's going to always be there. Um, is it a problem still? Yes, it's still a problem. And it's something that I personally I'm dealing with now, uh, actually came to the, the, the forefront that the Russian Olympic champion in 2012 in my event, which is the 400 meter hurdles. You said 400 meters, 400 meter hurdles. Um, Much tougher she, event too. <laughs> she, um, she's up for arbitration in uh, July for um, doping allegations, um, which at this point she's probably tested positive or whatever material that they picked up from um, the investigation prior uh, that they were doing from, what was it, 2015 for the, uh, the investigation? 2015, yeah. right around that Yeah, time. so um, I think this is still evidence from that investigation still coming out, but um, it's always going to be a problem, but what I hope that they would do about it is to be more proactive and figuring out how they're going to deal with it for the victims because they already have what they're going to do for people that are caught. They know what the, uh, the punishment is. They know everything. They have everything lined up for those who are caught cheating, but I don't think they have done research on what they will do for those who are victims of it. And I would like to see um, a more proactive approach with that. You know, because we are losing out on opportunities. We're losing out on moments in time that you're unable to get back. So um, there's my two cents on that. Okay, great. Uh, question for Donna. Uh, what improvements have there been for women's sports getting equal footing to, to men's sports? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> you can only... Yeah. Just look at what our U.S. women's soccer team, probably one of the most celebrated groups, um, right? Um, you know, has has had to go through in the last couple of years to get equal money from their national sport governing body to have to fight to play on real grass when they play their world championships when guys are given grass. We are still women are still so far behind. It is. Um, um, you know, I'm not being as grim a, re a reaper as our grim re reaper, but I'm, uh, I, I don't have this confidence that um, we're taking this on uh, at all. We've got to raise holy heck. And I don't think we can do anything until the athletes get into power. Hmm. And, and, and have the ability to speak up. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, the women's soccer team did, though. They've been fighting and fighting and proving themselves. Ice hockey did the same thing. The team sport seemed to have, you know, stuck together. Uh, and it's so much harder in individual sports where you don't train as a team. Um, but, but, but you're right. I, I'm looking. I think the one big change that's going to happen in the next 10 years is we're seeing the first generation of athletes to feel their protest oats, to, to feel like, you know what, I don't care what the stakes are. Civil rights are more important. Fair treatment is more important. Just treatment is more important. And we're seeing this uh, open up, this flower open up uh, yeah. in front of us right now. You never saw athletes marching at protests. Right. Um, 
So I am very enthusiastic as to this next leadership group that's going to change the world. I wanted to go to uh, our uh, resident historian here with this question, and then also to Greg uh, again with with your you know your historical uh, participate your your participation going back to the seventies. This question: um, Are the Olympics too big? Uh, are there too many events? Uh, too much stuff? Uh, and is that one reason that it's such a big cost, the footprint um, that requires so much security? Basically, could we have a downsized Olympics? So Victoria and then and then Greg, what do, you, what do you think about that? Too big? Oh, it's such a juggernaut. And again, with sports, we just it, across the board with all these institutions, because we we just the default is this is a good thing. We allow them to continue to grow and grow and grow without any kind of critical stepping back, um, you know, and reset or rethink. And, um, you know, it's tragic that we're going through this global pandemic right now, but it is an opportunity, again, if people like recognize the opportunity to really reconsider and think, is it good for so many people to pack into one place? What kind of environmental impact does that have or community impact does that have? Because it's, of course, not just the athletes, it's all the media presence, it's the corporate presence. It's, I mean, there's so many people at Olympic Games. And, you know, people have been calling for kind of you know, a spreading out of the venues across multiple locations. Philip Kirsch, I think, advocated for this, a longtime Olympic writer for the Chicago Tribune. Um, I want to shout him out for this. But, um, you know, in this digital age, is there really a reason to have everybody in one place if you can kind of recreate an opening? Like the opening ceremonies is the, the reason you have everyone in one place. Is there a way to do that in a digital way where you're, you know, zooming into multiple locations and kind of spreading out that that impact so that would be my response to that <laughs> Greg how do you feel about that yeah I mean I, I think uh, you made a great point with this global pandemic that's that's happening it's it's really opening up people's eyes and minds to uh, unique ways of, of gathering of coming together you know just like this uh, you know this whole meeting uh, is doing so so much more virtually, and it's so much kinder to the planet. And so, you know, I think that you know it'll take uh, the imagination of our of our young kids coming up, you know, and uh, and hopefully that that we are open minded enough to to listen to them. Great, great. Um, I'm wondering about Black Lives Matter. In this, in this, in this moment, um, obviously something important to me is the uh, as the only uh, black reporter in the sports section at the New York Times, and uh, we need to change that. Uh, and and just living as a black man in America, I wanted to ask you, Lashinda, where do you think where do you think the movement goes that 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 movement goes um, uh, with, with the with with the Olympics and with athletes? I mean, it's going to be very We've talked already about the difficulty in speaking out, but um, are there other, if, if that doesn't change, um, are there other ways that, uh, that there can be more racial equi equity? Um, or do you feel that there's already racial equity in, in the games? I'm not sure. I don't want to put words in your mouth. The funny part is in sports in general, you'll see the most racial um, equality, like our diversity. Um, Sports allows for, I feel, the most diversity 
So when you take away sports, it's, it's more segregated. And, you know, with the sports kind of brings more people together. Um, and sports is a way that you have black women and men in the colleges. You know, it's 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 like a gate to a lot of things in Olympic the Olympic Games are one of the things. And you spoke about like some of the communities that uh, these Olympics are built in and is more so the, you know, the downtrodden ones. And it's the crazy part is that a lot, I don't want to speak for everyone, but many people come from these areas in their regions that these Olympic Games are being put in. And so they're in one way you're, <laughs> it's just you mean many crazy. of the, you mean many of the athletes? Yeah, yeah. That that they're coming from areas where these games are kind of tearing apart those communities, but they're allowing a platform and a stage for these same kids that didn't think this was possible and traveling the world and this, that, and the other. Um. So you know, I, I honestly I see that the Olympic Games would only help matters. I do. I, and I've always said that sports in general helps this matter. It helps social justice. It helps all of the above. And that's one of the things that I tell parents that I don't care if your child is an athlete or not. Sports should be something that you participate in hmm. for, for all other reasons. You know, um, it helps. So I don't know if I answered your question, but that's how I feel um, that it would impact, I guess, the acceptance of the term Black Lives Matter. And um, did, did yeah. you ever have, did you ever have an experience when you were, when you were in, at, at one of the games, uh, any negative experiences at all, maybe even outside the venue? Um, outside the venue. Yes. I had a, an experience in, well, actually not the Olympic games, but traveling abroad at world championships. Um, I was in Munich and uh, we were just a friend and I were just out at a club and it was a local, a local club. And we were the only uh, black people there and they were like throwing bottle caps at us. And so it wasn't like an array of them just coming, but you'll just feel something on your head and you're like, what happened? Think it's a mistake. And then you might feel two or three more like that kind of stuff was happening the whole night. Um, and in Russia, uh, it was the world championships in 2013. I, my mom and I were in the train station and I don't know where we were going, but we were taking the local transportation and like some things were being yelled at us, but I don't know what they were saying in the Russian language. <laughs> so uh, not, not friendly. It wasn't friendly at all. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that happened too, but we were warned about this type of stuff, especially in Russia. Um, they actually, we had a meeting about it, the whole team stating that like some things they're not quite up to date with and you might get some of this and that. And of course that's uh, when she gave the example of the um, uh, pride and the fingernails being polished, uh, the rainbow color and stuff like that what was that what was that because I, I think our audience victoria uh which which jumper was it yes a high jumper from sweden um so uh russia had just passed an anti-gay law um and this was you know yeah. on the eve of both the moscow 23 
uh, world championships in track. And then of course the following year was going to be Sochi. And so athletes were kind of testing to see how much they could do to protest, to support um, LGBT rights. And so she painted her nails in rainbow colors during the prelims and was told she needed to change her nail polish for the finals or she'd be disqualified. And then we saw even more in Sochi. So things like that, we were warned about in our meeting prior to competing, stating like you might run into these type of issues and here's how you kind of navigate and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I can understand, you know, some of my travels for, for events, I have to be very careful, you know, where I go as just as a reporter, I'm usually by myself, you know, traveling from the, from the site to, um, you know, my hotel or what have you. And I would do a lot of walking and, you can get caught in a, in a, in a really yeah. terrible, terrible, tough situation with, you know, with people that don't have your best interests in mind. So see, uh, like, the great thing about that is though, that in itself, us being there, somebody from the LBTQ uh, community, um, African-Americans, you name it, people from different countries, just being there is a protest. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, it's, that's how I look at the Olympic games on a positive note. It does that. It's taking you to places where they're saying, we don't want you here and you're there. And guess what? You're doing some extraordinary things. So, um, so should we keep going to those types of countries that are authoritarian? I, I believe so. I, I mean, yeah, as long as they can keep us safe, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a type of protest. And once you kind of present something new and show people, in my opinion, and show people that this is here, whether you like it or not, that kind of softens, softens, yeah. you know, the heart, yeah. in my opinion. So, yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're close to winding down here. I, I got to say, I love all the questions that are coming in about militarization of the police and, and, and security and, and, and all that. And um, I, I think you could, we could do practically a whole, a whole subject or a whole section, a whole show just on, just on that alone. And, you know, again, going back to my experience in, in, in 2016 in Rio, um, I know the community there, at least the people that I talked to felt very sh shut out, felt very, very afraid. Um, and one issue that, you know, I might maybe close with this, um, you know, people felt like they couldn't go. They literally, they could not, the people in the favelas in Rio felt that they could not afford to go to the games that were literally like in some cases, like a half a mile away. Yeah. And there were, I mean, this is a massive amount of people in Rio um, let me open it, open this up. Just the last question: How how could we make the games more open to people and more? Any but thoughts? It, 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 all, it, it does. It all comes down to governing body policy. Mm -hmm. uh, ex example: um, uh, Qatar wanted to the twenty twenty two you know World Cup, right? And they brought in the whole FIFA uh, group to Qatar and they, they played a demonstration game in their stadium and there were no women in the stadium. And FIFA brought up, there are no women in the stadium. The next day, half of the stadium was women. And, and so there is a way for governing organizations to exercise conditions, whether it be civil rights, um, whether it be uh, at least 20% of all tickets need to be given to lower socioeconomic level kids or communities, we can do all that. But it's our governing bodies that are full, that are not governing. There are trade associations that are a brand centric, uh, protecting their own salaries, 
we just we we have to turn that top upside down and we've got to put more athletes into that all right well i think that we will wrap up this discussion again i mean there's so many so many areas that we could have just gone into for uh, for an entirely different show um i want to say that i really appreciate all of you um coming coming aboard and, and i appreciate zocalo for having me as a moderator um, you guys are, are fantastic and, and a big inspiration to me. And uh, hope, hopefully we we did a good job, uh, you know, opening up some issues here. So and, and helping people think about them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thanks.